Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Tyone, do you think... Yes, the world's largest mud volcano in East Java, Indonesia, will stop erupting by the spring of 2017. I'm 78% certain. That's amazing. How did you know... I'm a super forecaster. I not only know what's going to happen, I also know what you're going to ask me. But I only... There's something you don't know. A carbonated drink called Lucy, based on the volcano, is about to become incredibly popular all throughout Asia. You have 23 minutes to get in on this and quintuple your investment. Kion, I mainly wanted to know... Whether advances in drilling technology will allow humans to drill through the Earth's crust to its mantle five miles deep, yes, but not until 2018. Yes, but can... China develop a stealth fighter? Not until 2019, around the same time Jordan gets a nuclear power plant. Kion, I was just going to ask if we get Columbus Day off. I have no idea. Why don't I know that? Mayday! Mayday! Listen to this show about super forecasters. There's an 88% probability it'll be hosted by, mm, let's see, Colin McEnroe. See, she was absolutely correct about that. Uh, I am the host. So let me tell you something about this show, because it's a little bit unusual, all right? Today, when I'm talking, is August 20th. And we're not going to run this show until the very end of September for various reasons having to do with the publication of a book. So um, it's possible that things will come up today that will be very different by the time you're listening, particularly because we are talking about forecasting and super forecasting. So what do we mean by that? Um, Let's imagine five questions, things that maybe a government or a person might want to know. True or false, India will achieve manned space flight by the end of 2016. True or false, in Yemen, Sana will become the first world capital to completely run out of water by March of 2017. True or false, Al Gore will enter the presidential race by January 1st uh, of next year. True or false, uh, the current monthly sales of Soylent, a controversial food replacement system, will double by October 15th of next year. True or false, a safe, effective pill to pre- prevent sunburn will be available by 2017. Well, these are really hard questions to answer. I mean, there's people who kind of have expertise in these fields, and they may seem to have a better chance at answering those questions. And then there's a whole bunch of other people. And one of the things you're going to learn today, uh, people like me, people who are pundits, people who are journalists, columnists, uh, self-styled experts, the people whose predictions you're most likely to encounter if you're watching television, reading a magazine or a newspaper, pay no attention to people like us, the Lawrence Kudlows and the Thomas Friedmans and the Peggy Noonans and the Colin McEnroes. They don't know what they're talking about. They don't have good predictive skills. All they have is kind of a platform uh, to make these predictions. Well, anyway, maybe you have some opinions, too, about some of the questions I just asked, or maybe some other questions that'll come up here. There are people who are extraordinarily good at predicting outcomes. It's not necessarily as a result of the incredible training they have in one of these fields. It's more Um, It's more tied to how they think about things, how they go about solving a problem, answering a question. Some of them are occupying fields that you would expect. Some of them are, you know, university mathematicians and things like that. But some of them are just kind of, if there is such a thing, pretty ordinary people. Uh, Some some of them are retired from their former jobs. Some of them uh, are doing this in addition to their jobs. And they're really, really good at it, shockingly good. 
uh, at answering questions like the ones that I just asked. So we're going to talk about those people today, uh, about who they are, where they come from, and how they were discovered and how they continue to be discovered. Uh, so let me tell you who we're going to talk to. Dr. Jason Matheny is director of IARPA, uh, the Intelligence Advanced Research Projects Activity, which co- operates under the United States Director of National Intelligence. It's probably the most unconventional intelligence agency uh, in the U.S. government and, and maybe anywhere else, too. Uh, Philip Tetlock is also with us. Uh, he's a political science writer and professor of psychology and management at the University of Pennsylvania. His new book, Super Forecasting, The Art and Science of Prediction, Uh, is out right now. And right now, I mean when you're listening to it. I'm predicting, I am forecasting that Philip Tetlock's book will be out by the time that this is on the air. Uh, I have a, I have reason to think that's a good bet. Uh, anyway, uh, so uh, those are our first two guests. In a little while, you'll meet Elaine Rich. She is a mild-mannered pharmacist by day, but at night she becomes a certified super forecaster. We'll uh, get her to tell you how she does that. She's exactly the kind of person that I'm talking about. Um, Dr. Jason, Jason Matheny, if it's all right, I'd like to start with you. First of all, welcome to the show. Thanks, Colin. Uh, maybe you can just begin by explaining what IARPA is. I said it's an unconventional intelligence agency. It, it's sort of its mandate is to do something pretty different from what are the what most of the intelligence agencies that people might know about would do. Is that correct? Yeah, that is right. Uh, we're outward facing. Uh, we're the high risk, high payoff research arm of the intelligence community that funds work in uh, academia and in industry to solve really hard problems like the one that uh, that Tetlock worked on. And so well, let's talk about the, te- what, the one that Tetlock worked on. So what you did was create a tournament, really, and I, you actually called it that. Um, explain what that tournament was. Yeah, so uh, a little over four years ago, uh, we decided to run a uh, forecasting tournament focused on geopolitical questions, questions of the sort that, uh, that you gave examples, um, political elections, multilateral treaties, weapons tests, interstate conflict. Our goal was to figure out, uh, are there methods that allow us to forecast those sorts of events with greater accuracy, or at least know where we should be most humble about our forecast? That is, what sorts of questions do we typically get wrong? Um, another one of our goals was to find out if uh, there are ways of improving human judgments um, about these kinds of questions that are, that are generalizable. Uh, that is, can you understand what sorts of judgmental mistakes most people make? Can you find ways of correcting them? Uh, and one of those approaches is, uh, is by combining judgments from a fairly large number of people. Uh, which which Phil's team uh, did successfully by recruiting large numbers of them, taking careful measurements of those peoples and their patterns of judgment, uh, and then finding ways of combining those judgments in ways that were quite accurate. So initially, you had multiple teams. You had teams from, from different places, from different sources. One of them was this Tetlock team, uh, sometimes known as the Good Judgment Project. Um, so, so what did you do? In other words, you had all of these teams essentially working on the same problems uh, and, and then just tracking to see how well they did? Yeah, that's right. It was, I mean, it was a pretty straightforward idea, which is if you, um, you want to find out uh, which forecasts are right, um, stage a tournament, a sort of level playing field competition in which you assign a whole bunch of questions. Uh, Nobody has a leg up because these are questions uh, about events that haven't happened yet. Uh, Wait for those events to happen or not to happen and then uh, take score. So we served, IARPA served as the referee 
for for this competition. But the people who were who were doing the research and making the forecasts uh, came from over 23 uh, universities, colleges, and companies um, from around the world. So, uh, Philip Tetlock, we're going to let you brag a little bit. How did the Good Judge, Judgment Project do in this tournament? Um, well, uh, we we won it. Um, we won it uh, in each year. Well, we won it. The, the, the external competition existed in, in years one and two. Uh, and I, I think we were winning by sufficient margins in the first two years that um, Jason and his uh, team at IARPA decided it would be reasonable to consolidate and uh, let us uh, pick up on talent from other teams and um, uh, compete against um, um, other benchmarks. Uh, what other benchmarks would there be, though? Well, in, when, when, one benchmark we could compete against would be the intelligence community itself. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe we'll circle back to that because it's kind of an interesting question and whether or not the intelligence community would want anybody to know how well they did against retired people and pharmacists and stuff like that. But, um, uh, Jason is there? I mean, I could, I could grab an example from, uh, from Philip Tetlock's book, but is there a sample question or a problem that really stands out in your mind, one that was kind of interesting to watch people try to attack? Actually, I would defer to Phil on this just because uh, I think he, his, um, his direct engagement with some of the forecasters as well as with um, uh, people who are sort of professional pundits who, who uh, took, a, uh, took a shot at some of these questions. Um, I'd be interested in, in his thoughts on which questions were most interesting in part because of their departure from conventional wisdom. All right. Yeah, I've, I've got one in mind, but uh, uh, Phil Tetlock, if you have one in mind, why don't we start there? Um, well, the, the, there are many questions that, that, that shed light on different aspects of human judgment and, and, on, on, and on the aggregation algorithms. Uh, one one, that, com, one that, com, that pops to mind quickly and that we talked about in the super forecasting book is the, uh, whether the Swiss and French medical teams would find evidence that Yasser Arafat, uh, find evidence of polonium in the remains of Yasser Arafat. I just want to say, before you go any further, Phil, not that I'm a super forecaster, but before you started talking, I typed out to my staff in the message field, Arafat's body. I'm just saying that. All right. Anyway, continue. <laughs> well, well, the interesting feature of that question is is um, the tendency for people when 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 they're asked uh, questions to touch on political controversies to um, to jump to conclusions too quickly. So when some people heard that question, they didn't hear the question, "Would the medical teams find evidence of polonium?" They heard a different question. They heard the question, "Did Israel poison Arafat?" Mm-hmm. And that's a, that wasn't the question that was asked. <laughs> it was really a quite different question, um, and uh, the, the super uh, forecasters who who um, replace a really hard question with a question they consider to be easier um, are at grave risk of getting bad forecasting accuracy scores. Um, so you actually in the book you walk us through how one of your super forecasters looked at this question, and he, and he had a whole bunch of metho- very methodical ways of thinking about this, including just you know how likely is it that given how long Arafat had been in the ground that any polonium could be found. Once he verified that, he worked up several hypotheses about how polonium could get into Arafat's body and kind of worked through all those. So uh, it's really, really different from how you might think that a, quote, 
quote-unquote spy would work, right? I mean, he's not really assuming any knowledge based on his own part. He doesn't have a huge intelligence knowledge to build on. He's got a whole bunch of questions. Well, I, I certainly wouldn't characterize him as a spy. Right. Uh, he's, a, he's an analyst. He's an, he's, a, he's an observer, and he's an observer who lacks access to classified information of the sort that spies might collect. And he's approaching the, approaching the problem in a remarkably dispassionate way. Uh, he's putting aside any, any strong value commitments he might have one way or the other in Middle Eastern conflicts. And he, he's simply looking at the question. He's dissecting it. He's saying, what, what exactly would have to be, would be, be, be true for this to happen? What, would have to, what, 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 what could prevent it from happening? And he's balancing those in a, in a methodical, um, flexible way. One of the terms that you use about this is called outside first. Explain what outside first means. Well, it, it refers to the um, tendency for people to approach a new situation as if it were completely unique or unprecedented, whereas there is really nothing unique under the sun. Uh, every, everything has some types of precedence of some sort. There are sometimes the precedents are hard to find. Sometimes they're, 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 quite, they're quite obvious. Um, and the, 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 but the tendency is, is uh, to... Um, is to exaggerate the uniqueness of the, of, the, of the individual situation and to fail to ask the question, how often do things of this sort happen uh, as, as part of the historic, long-term historical average? Um, and if you set your initial probability estimate based on the outside view, you're, you are likely to do better uh, in the long term than if you uh, simply uh, focus on it as, as a unique event. So, for, for example, if someone asks you a question about whether a particular dictator in a particular part of the world is going to remain in power by the end of the year, and you know nothing about this country or this dictator, you might at least get some handle on the problem by asking, well, how, how, how often do dictators uh, who have been in power for X years survive another year? And the answer to that question is it will be a pretty high percentage, and that you could you could at least start you start your estimation process there, and then you could start revising it in response to more and more of the unique information in the case, like there are large protests in the capital and there are hints of a coup and this or that. Uh, but you would be aware that events of the sort that you're being asked to predict at that moment um, are historically somewhat rare. And attaching high probabilities to rare events is risky. It doesn't, doesn't mean you shouldn't do it sometimes, but it means you should do it with an awareness that they are rare events. So uh, I want to come back to um, some of the kind of habits of mind that these super forecasters uh, tend to have um, uh, and, and, and also your process of kind of culling out these super forecasters and maximizing their talents. But before we do this, let's go back to uh, Dr. Jason Matheny for a second. Um, you know, in a way, this is part of a really historic effort by the intelligence communities and by governments to do better, right? I mean, I'm a child of the baby boom, so I mean, I have sort of the dimmest possible memories that have been enhanced by a lot of reading of the Kennedy administration. And so they had the Bay of Pigs crisis, where they had you know just huge intelligence errors. They made vast errors of judgment. It was an incredible embarrassment to the Kennedy administration. And so in the wake of that, they really did sort of look at their process and try to figure out, well, how did we make all these mistakes? How do we avoid making all these mistakes? And there's certainly a theory that the Cuban Missile Crisis went as it did, went as well as it did, because some, some things had been put in place. And some of the things sound um, remarkably like 
Philip Tetlock things. For example, one of the things that these super forecasters do is they're very open to hearing uh, opinions that are not their own, to pursuing uh, ideas that, that would really basically fly in the face of what they tend to believe about a certain situation. That's certainly something that the Kennedy administration did. So how paradigm shattering, how revolutionary is the thing that Philip Tetlock is talking about right now, and how much of it is just kind of a refinement on how intelligence is always trying to improve itself? Well, I, I think there there are some some real differences between uh, what what Phil and and uh, Barb Mellers and Don Moore and others on his team have achieved, and you know standard analytic practice, not just within the intelligence community, but within really any large organization. Um, I mean, one of them is the assignment of, of probabilities uh, to events, uh, which is, um, I, I think, a really uh, good mechanism for being explicit about one's judgment and making it open to measurement. Um, people are sometimes reluctant to assign a numerical probability to a judgment, but one benefit of doing so is that you get to uh, look at your track record over time as opposed to using language, using words like, well, I think it's likely or I think it's not so likely. It's, it's hard to score those words after the fact. Um, and th- then it's, it's hard to figure out where you are making mistakes and learn from them. Well, another, another difference, I would say, is uh, many organizations um, that have to make decisions um, assume that the best decisions or the best judgments are made, people with, made by people with deep domain expertise. Uh, and something that uh, that Phil found from from prior work, as well as I think it's been reinforced in, in this work within uh, the, the program that he participated in for IARPA, uh, is that domain expertise might matter much less than critical thinking ability, uh, the tendency to look out for information that contradicts your current beliefs, uh, and things like fluid intelligence, you know, the ability to recognize patterns in, in data. Um, that's that's tended possibly to be um, undervalued uh, relative to domain expertise, um, but but it looks as though from the results from from Phil's latest work uh, that organizations maybe ought to be looking for people who aren't necessarily deep domain experts, but just have this set of cognitive traits. And and so I mean that kind of almost tracks with Thomas Kuhn's whole theory of the structure of scientific revolutions, right? That people, you know, researchers tend to chase one paradigm for a really long time, so knowledge plateaus at a certain place uh, and and then shoots up in a different way because uh, the people who have domain expertise they kind of get dug into a certain way of looking at things uh, as opposed to constantly looking for a new way to look at things. So. Um, you know, in terms of the percentages, though, uh, uh, this whole idea of percentage of certainty, uh, Dr. Jason Matheny, uh, I know that you guys do that because I watched Zero Dark Thirty. I also read Phil's book, but I watched Zero Dark Thirty, and they go around the room and they say, "How? how what? What's your percentage certainty that Osama bin Laden is, uh, you know, is where where you say he is?" Um, and James Gandolfini plays Leon Panetta, and he doesn't even like hearing all those percentages. Isn't that the way intelligence operates with those percentages? Is that movie accurate? Um, I don't know about that particular scene. I, I wasn't in the room uh, on that night, but um, but I, I think if you if you look at descriptions of uh, intelligence analysis in you know published textbooks, uh, or you look at unclassified national intelligence estimates um, like uh, like ones that have been um, posted online 
uh, by uh, the National Intelligence Council, uh, you'll find um, uh, very little use of numerical probabilities. That's interesting. All right, so uh, Phil Tetlock, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about these super forecasters. One of the things you did was effectively try to cull the very best people from various teams, right? The people who rose to the top, when you track their performance, they were the most frequently accurate. Those are the so-called super forecasters, and you kind of skimmed them like cream off the top, right? Who were they? Right. Well, uh, bear in mind it's only possible to identify super forecasters if you do what Jason just described, and that is you elicit explicit probability judgments and you score accuracy over over long stretches of time over a variety of questions. Um, If you don't do that, you wind up with the kind of situation the Kennedy administration wound up in with the Bay of Pigs, uh, where they they, they asked for uh, a separate opinion from the Joint Chiefs of Staff about how likely the invasion was to succeed, and the Joint Chiefs responded that they thought it uh, had a fair chance of succeeding. Uh, and Kennedy interpreted that as at least a cautious go-ahead. Uh, and it, when, when they were later, when, it, when the, um, the, the person who did the report for the Joint Chiefs uh, was later asked what he meant by fair chance, he meant, oh, about one in three. Now, it's probably unlikely that it, it's, it's unlikely that, uh, that that Kennedy would have been as confident in moving ahead with the invasion if he thought that, that it only had a one in three chance of succeeding. Uh, when you use this kind of vague verbiage instead of explicit probability judgments, uh, it's very people very easy for people to slip into misunderstandings. And some people might hear fair, fair chance, they might think, oh, maybe 70% chance of succeeding. Other people might hear 30%. Uh, it, 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 sets, it sets you up for serious miscommunication and for, for policy fiascos. So the whole enterprise of trying to identify super forecasters is predicated on exactly what Jason is talking about, which is uh, keeping score by getting people to do something rather unnatural, and that is uh, translate their vague hunches into explicit probability metrics. It's not easy to do that. It takes some time. It takes some practice. And the super forecasters over time, uh, with lots of practice, got really good at it. Um, I think what we'll do is we'll take a break right now. Uh, uh, Jason's time is a little bit limited, so when we come back, I want to talk about the Office of Anticipating Surprises, uh, as well as uh, also some of the attributes that these people, these super forecasters, exhibit pretty, pretty consistently. Let's tell the future. Let's see how it's been done. By numbers, by mirrors, by water. By dots made at random on paper By salt, by dice, by meal, by mice By dough of cakes, by sacrificial fire By fountains, by fishes, writers in ashes We're talking about super forecasters. These are, for the most part, amateurs forecasting global events in their spare time with whatever info uh, they can dig up. Uh, They are uh, not necessarily people who have had a lot of training or spent a lot of time in the intelligence community. Uh, They are uh, a Brooklyn filmmaker, a retired pipe installer, a former ballroom dancer. They just happen to be really, really good at this kind of thing. Um, And so uh, we're talking to uh, Dr. Jason Matheny, director of IARPA, that's the intelligence Advanced Research Projects Activity, which operates under the U.S. Director of National Intelligence, and Philip Tetlock, uh, the person who has assembled, located, assembled, culled, trained, and maximized the, maximized the abilities of these super forecasters. His new book is Super Forecasting, The Art and Science of Prediction. So um, 
First of all, Dr. Jason Matheny, I mean, even given IARPA's somewhat unconventional mi- mission and, and their mandate to come up with kind of new paradigms and new ways of doing stuff, I would assume at a certain point when it became clear that this good judgment project existed and that there were the kind of people I just enumerated who were effectively testing themselves, maybe not really directly but implicitly, against the work of this enormous intelligence community. Were people, what what was the, what kind of reactions did you get? I mean, were people laughing at you? Were they threatened by this idea? How, How did other people in intelligence look at all this? Well, I, I think inside IARPA, of course, we, we loved it. We love to see successful research, um, and not just when the result is, is positive. Um, I mean, it's it's also really valuable to see when a result is negative, when the research is carefully done. Um, but what was, what was so um, rewarding about seeing Phil's great work and the rest of his team and the other teams that participated in this program uh, was was seeing really meticulously designed uh, experiments uh, that shed so much light on the nature of, of human judgments um, about uh, about geopolitics, uh, and uh, and then to see that there were really practical um, applications uh, of this research that that one could imagine. Now, IARPA's work ends uh, uh, with the research, right? So we. We only uh, work on the research side. We don't we don't operationalize any of the uh, the methods or technologies that are developed within it. Uh, but um, you know the interest in in this research has spanned all of government. Um, I think you know this is this has been one of the um, uh, the, the 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 projects uh, here at IARPA that's been most enjoyable to brief and to present to to others within and outside of government, just because. Um, so many people can imagine applying these kinds of techniques to their own organization, to the kinds of decisions that they make uh, as um, as uh, as leaders or as uh, as individuals. Um, the the kinds of uh, of, of rules of of, uh, of thought uh, that Phil's team, I think, has found has been really constructive in um, uh, assembling judgments about. Um, geopolitical events probably apply to a range of other events as well. Um, the um, As we got ready for the show and our producer, Josh Nalea, was telling us more and more about it, at a certain point he told me told us about something called the Office of Anticipating Surprises, which, I mean, even just even the name of that made us incredibly happy. Uh, so, uh, Jason, explain to us, what is the Office of Anticipating Surprises? Yeah, so that's a research office within IARPA uh, that was started a couple of years ago to pursue uh, research um, in the same mold as uh, as this program that uh, that Phil and I have worked together on, uh, the the idea of running forecasting tournaments um, across a broad range of, of problems. Uh, so ACE is focused. The, the program that we've been talking about is focused on uh, geopolitical events using human judgments. Uh, we have other programs. There's one called Open Source Indicators that looks at uh, making statistical forecasts. Uh, from large volumes of open source data about things like disease outbreaks, can we um, uh, can we better forecast or detect disease outbreaks from uh, the way in which um, uh, web search queries are being used, or um, uh, whether we see crowding at pharmacies or hospitals? Um, so those sorts of, of data for that program can be used um, in a way that doesn't use human judgments but uses machine learning. 
We have a separate program here called CAUSE that looks at forecasting cyber attacks, uh, which is a concern not only within government but also within industry, uh, and a, a separate program uh, that's, that's looking at making better arguments um, for events, um, for whether or not those events are likely to occur, uh, by sort of crowdsourcing the arguments uh, and evidence um, that, uh, that appears to um, uh, support or contradict uh, something occurring. So, um, you know, since you just mentioned uh, crowdsourcing, uh, Philip Tetlock, some of this goes back to much more primitive versions of what is sometimes called the wisdom of crowds, right? This sort of notion that if you get enough people, you know, there's the famous Ox experiment in 1906 where uh, the they have 800 people trying to guess the weight of an ox. And even though a lot of their guesses are wildly wrong, the average guess was extremely close to the average, to the actual weight of the ox. I think it was like within a pound or so of this 1,978-pound ox or whatever, whatever it was. So we know that if you get a lot of people together, even if they're not experts, of any kind, there is some kind of aggregate, hard to explain, I would think, um, accuracy that develops. So, But that's sort of wisdom of crowds 101, right? You're doing something much more complex. Well, uh, wisdom of crowds 101 is very important. Um, and uh, people, since, you know, Galton was working 100 plus years ago, and um, over the last 100 years, uh, statisticians and psychologists and other scholars have argued a lot about whether it makes more sense to talk about the wisdom of crowds or the madness of crowds. And um, the, 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 the ox experiment you described is often taken as a paradigmatic example of how you can get wisdom from a, from a crowd, even though each member of the crowd doesn't know very much. They know little bits of different things, and they're making the judgments completely independently of each other. And when that happens, it tends to be the case that uh, the average judgment of the crowd is more accurate than 90%, 95% sometimes of the individuals from whom the average was derived. Uh, so the average beats the individuals who are making up the average, uh, which um, people found, find a little bit counterintuitive. But when, 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 you, when, you, when you think about it and you, <laughs> you work out the numbers, and they're not very complicated, uh, it, 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 it pretty much ha- almost has to be that way. Um, so we, we, we certainly used averaging. Uh, we also used more complex forms of averaging, weighted averages, giving more weight to more recent, to more, more recent judgments of the, of, the, of the better forecasters. Uh, and we also used um, an interesting algorithm known as extremizing that was developed by Lyle Unger and John Barron and other um, uh, statisticians and psychometricians working uh, on our team. Uh, that that uh, added additional predictive power to that, but you probably don't want me to go into that. Well, um, n- well, maybe not necessarily. No, but um, but so one thing that followed on the heels of this, maybe one of the place, one of the stops along the way, in between the Ox experiment and you, are, are prediction markets, right? A lot of different entities have set these things up, and and it's it's sort of an exchange-traded version of prediction. So you ask that market, you ask people in this market uh, to effectively bet on something. You know, will Al Gore uh, declare as a presidential candidate in between now and January 1st? Um, and and the, so, once again, those are different from what you're doing, but they're the precursor kind of to what you're doing, right? And And those work pretty well. Well, uh, you, you can argue that any financial market is, in some fundamental sense, uh, a prediction market. Uh, and there were many prediction markets that we experimented with in the, in the course of the four-year 
ACE program. Uh, there are many ways to run prediction markets, uh, and the prediction markets were strong performers uh, throughout the, the um, uh, throughout the tournament. Um, uh, so uh, that we, I, 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 I wouldn't I wouldn't disparage prediction markets. I, I, I would simply say that it was it was surprising that the super forecasters did as well as they did vis-a-vis prediction markets. All right. So, um, so Jason, I have to ask you. Um, at one point, uh, I think in a um, David Ignatius column or somewhere, it was reported that these good judgment project people were actually doing better than intelligence analysts who had access to intercepts and and, and other kinds of classified data. Um, did, did that cause any ripple uh, out there in the intelligence community? I mean, now now you really do have uh, amateurs. Who, who may, according to one report, be outperforming people who really do have access to very specialized kinds of information. Yeah, so it's uh, the apples-to-apples comparison hasn't really been made. Um, I mean, one of the, uh, one of the things we, we hope to do is to you know, test some of the methods that, uh, that Phil's team has, has developed. And, of course, they've done a great job of testing them uh, using um, volunteers, research volunteers, and other research participants uh, from outside of the intelligence community, uh, taking those same methods and applying them inside the intelligence community is a is a great research goal, uh, and it's it's one that we're working on. Um, and then we have some other uh, work that we hope to be publishing soon. One of our researchers here uh, that is within IRPA uh, has spent the last couple of years kind of comparing uh, intelligence forecasts. Uh, to forecasts uh, made within the ACE program. Um, and I don't want to scoop that, that research since um, hopefully this, uh, this group here will be um, getting it accepted by a journal soon. Um, but I, I think that there's so much opportunity to run these kinds of benchmarking studies uh, in which we look at the relative performance of uh, different systems, some of which depend on unclassified information, some of which depend on classified information, where does classified information make a difference? Uh, under what conditions? Um, what sorts of people are better at answering certain kinds of questions? Uh, those are those are all research topics uh, that I think are are really rich uh, and have been relatively unexplored. Uh, you mentioned ACE. We should uh, remind people that that's the aggregative contingent estimation, right? This is um, this is sort of the glue between IARPA and Philip Tetlock's uh, Good Judgment program. This is well, you, maybe you can quickly say once again what what ACE is. Yeah, so ACE is the the four year research program in which we funded Phil's team as as well as others uh, to conduct research and and run a, a forecasting tournament. Right. Um, well, listen, uh, Jason, I know that uh, your time is limited. Um, I think what we'll do is we'll take a break now, let you get back to uh, uh, saving the country or what it is, whatever it is you're doing today. Uh, Dr. Jason Matheny, it was great to talk to you, uh, Director of IARPA, the Intelligence Advanced Research Projects Activity. Um, and when we come back, we're going to talk to Philip Tetlock a little bit. Maybe you're sitting there wondering, wait a minute. Am I a super forecaster? Would I be a good super forecaster? Uh, We'll talk a little bit about the qualities of that kind of person and introduce you to that kind of person. You'll meet Elaine Rich, who indisputably is one.
We're recording this on August 20th, and you're listening at the end of September, so out of curiosity, is this whole Donald Trump thing over yet? I didn't think so. Today's show was produced by Josh Nalea and me, Kyone Wolf. I believe that by September 29th, our interns will be Martin O'Malley and David Ortiz. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin, and Sir Ray Hardman appeared in the intro. For show pages, articles, and photos of the Faith Middleton Show staff, what's that? It's the Sepp Blatter Show now? Wow, I did not see that coming. Visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, <laughs> I have no idea. What am I, a super forecaster? And now, back to Colin. That's right. It is August 20th, 20th while we're talking to you. So we really don't know what tomorrow's program is. Uh, but it's very possible if we turned uh, one of our next guests, Elaine Rich, loose on that question. Maybe she'd be able to figure it out for us. Uh, but we don't really have time. Um, Philip Tetlock, before we uh, meet Elaine Rich, uh, one of your super forecasters, um, uh, let's talk a little bit about the, the, the actual qualities these people tend to have. These are spelled out at length in uh, your book, Super Forecasting, The Art and Science of Prediction. So um, if somebody's sitting out there wondering, wow, I wonder if I'm one of these people. I wonder, wonder, wonder if I'm one of these people who, you know, just using the information available to me and being turned loose on a series of, of questions uh, about future global events or political uprisings or disease outbreaks or, or, or whatever, whether I'd be really good at this. How, how could a person evaluate his or her likely aptitude? I think the first question they might want to ask themselves is this. Uh, do they believe that uh, subjective probability estimation is a skill that can be cultivated? And is it worth cultivating? Uh, and if the answers to those two questions are yes, uh, then I, I think the, the, the question is whether they're going to devote the necessary effort to um, uh, start assigning probability judgments to messy real-world events that they care about, learning from the feedback, and gradually getting a little better at it. So there's other qualities that they have. I mean, for example, in the book you talk about, you use the Isaiah Berlin model of the fox and the hedgehog. The hedgehog knows one thing very well. Uh, the fox knows a lot of things. So in this case, it's the the, the hedgehog who tends to have one, uh, a unitary way of thinking about things, or maybe sort of a theory of life that he or she applies to every conundrum, every situation. That person's not going to do as well as the fox, right? What is What advantage does the fox have uh, as super forecasting? Well, super forecasters tend to be a pretty eclectic lot, and uh, they, don't, they don't approach things from an orthodox, liberal, or conservative point of view, or an orthodox, optimist, or pessimist point of view. Uh, they... Um, they are, they're, they're rather data-driven, pragmatic uh, observers, um, and they don't fall in love with their hypotheses or, 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 or pet beliefs. Um, they're, they're, they're quite willing to tinker and revise those beliefs as new evidence comes in. Um, so they don't, feel, they don't feel all that threatened uh, when, 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 when surprises occur. It's right. not unusual, for example, for super forecasters uh, to make many small incremental adjustments to their beliefs. I mean, sometimes big things happen in the news, and that calls for a big probability shift. Uh, but often, a lot of the news is really quite gradual. It, it, it's like, uh, kind of like water torture. It gets drip, drip, drip. Uh, and it, 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 super forecasters have a great deal of patience in paying attention to the news and figuring out which news uh, it warrants a small upward tick or a small downward tick in the probability of, say, uh, whether Hillary Clinton is going to be the next president of the United States or whatever the uh, outcome of interest might be. 
Yeah. So at the beginning of the show, I threw out some hypotheticals in, in Yemen. Will the capital sound and be the first world capital to completely run out of water by I gave an arbitrary date, March of 2017. Or I asked whether Soylent, which is a controversial food replacement system, is going to double its sales in the first full year that it's on the market. So your super forecasters would uh, try to find ways to answer that question. But one of the things you allowed them to do is revise as things go along. So they're going to make adjustments as they get new information about how much water there is in Yemen or you know, how Soylent is doing, or maybe even more subtle clues that will influence the outcome of those two scenarios. That's exactly right. Um, let's meet uh, one of these, because uh, I think it's, it might be even interesting just to sort of um, hear how somebody like this thinks about problems. So I've been promising her to you all along. Here she is. She's Elaine Rich. She's um, uh, she's described in my notes as a mild-mannered pharmacist by day, but at night is certified super forecaster. Welcome to the show. Oh, hi. I like that. Okay. So, <laughs> so first of all, explain, how is it that you came to be a super forecaster? How, how did you even find out about this? Well, let's see. I, I follow politics a lot, and um, I was a big fan of Nate Silver back in 2011, and I would read his uh, 538 blog. And I think he gave the pitch, you know, that anybody who read his blog might be a good candidate for the Good Judgment Project, and... Um, to give it a try, and that's it's as simple as that. Um, let's take a problem that you worked on. You, I think, one of the problem one of the problems uh, that you worked on was a problem about Ebola, about whether Ebola would be confined in outbreak to the first three African countries that have it. I, I, I think I'm stating the problem right, but you can fix it up for me if I didn't. And tell tell me how you tackle a problem like that. Oh well, you know, I mean, really, the first thing is to read the question very carefully. Um, find out exactly what it's asking, um, what the cutoff day is, because you might think Ebola was going to get out of control totally, but then you see the cutoff day and you say, oh, that's a year from now. Or you might say, it's three months from now. Uh, you know, it, you really have to focus on the timeline um, and the criteria for resolution. But um, after that, you go looking for news, you go, you know, Wikipedia and Google. Um, see if there's historical analogies. Um, do you need more on that? Well, no. I, I'm also interested to know, I mean, how, uh, as one of these teams, how do you know when there's a new problem? Is there a special ringtone on your phone? Does it buzz a certain way? And you think, oh, that's like the bat signal. I've, I've, got, I've got another super fork. I mean, how do you find out that you're supposed to do something like this? Oh, well, um, uh, you, get, you can get emails, mm. but... Um, for the most part, at the end of every day, I'll check. Yeah. Um, yeah, and once once a week um, during the season, there are always new problems. Do you, was there a particular problem besides the Ebola one that jumps out? I mean, I know you've worked on things about world leaders, currencies, Arctic ice melts, treaties. Is there a particular problem that you had to work on that you found especially fascinating? Oh, um, I don't know that there was any one. Um, I mean... Um, Ebola I got pretty involved in because I'm, I'm a healthcare professional, and so it was actually something where I had an edge um, in understanding. Uh, so that was probably the big one for me. And, and one of the things that in Phil Tetlock's book is that you guys work in teams too, right? You're not out there by yourself, although I know some of the control people work individually. Have you worked in teams with other forecasters, super forecasters? Uh, for the last two years, yes. And, and how, how is that? How, I mean, first of all, you're meeting people who are 
probably in some ways like you, um, at least in terms of their intellectual approach to things. So, so what does the team do? How does the team function? Um, there uh, could be up to 15 people on a team, and um, you're all engaged um, on the same Internet platform. So you all know when the questions arrive. Like I said, uh, once a week there would be new questions. But uh, some people are always the first ones to get out, and uh, they'll bring links to the rest of us, and they'll also bring um, initial analysis. And then those of us who, um, you know, maybe are a little slower in, in the way we think about things, we'll, we'll come and um, we'll respond to what they've posted, whether we think it's complete, whether we think it needs to be um, adjusted. Everybody gets to make their own individual forecast. So when you're on a team, you, you don't have to you don't have to agree. Um, you each make your own um, probability estimate, and then it's the median of, of those estimates that will stand as the as the team uh, projection. But it does allow us to eat, to um, to maintain our our individual scores as well, mm-hmm. which is really nice. Um, and uh, Phil Tetlock, as you're listening to this. Um, well, first of all, one of the things that um, that you have written about is the sort of notion of the team, that this this is maybe a di- way in which it is a little bit different from the older prediction markets, where as the way I understand those anyway, everybody's pretty much an individual uh, trying to figure out, you know, how to bet in that market. Um, so what's the, what to your way of thinking is the importance of putting someone like Elaine into a team? Well, uh, teams and prediction markets are two quite complementary ways of uh, getting more out of individual judgment. Uh, teams uh, of the of the sort that Elaine worked in are, are, are collaborative, cooperative, whereas prediction markets are much more competitive. Uh, and the hope is that the, the truth will eventually emerge from people relentlessly second-guessing each other on the, on the correct market price. The, there's a lot of second-guessing of each other, I think, in the super forecasting teams as well, but I think it has a more, a more collegial and cooperative spirit to it. Um, the other thing about teams is uh, you know, teams can cut both ways. I mean, some, sometimes teams can lead to groupthink, and teams can be less than the sum of the individual parts, and sometimes teams can be more than the sum of their individual parts. And um, in, in this case, uh, the super forecasting teams were more than the sum of their individual parts. So, uh, Philip Tetlock, this works so well. Uh, I assume that there's a commercial spinoff to this. I mean, you've been uh, a great patriot in terms of helping the U.S. government uh, learn new ways of solving problems, new ways of making predictions. But, I mean, obviously, if I were in business, if I were uh, about to go into business, if I were about to invest a lot of my money in something, uh, and the Good Judgment Project, which I I think I know is trademarked, uh, were available to me, why wouldn't I want that? Well, one of the unsung heroes of the Good Judgment Project was the project manager, Terry Murray, who played a very key role in, in coordinating with the super forecasters. And uh, she is indeed the CEO of a private sector spinoff from the Good Judgment Project, Good Judgment, Inc., uh, that it does, does, does work with some uh, private sector entities. Um, so the, the answer is yes. Um, uh, the, 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 this is an example of government research that has inspired um, a private sector spinoff. Um, Elaine Rich, do you feel as though you know the things that are going to happen? I mean, obviously, your specialty is researching a problem, uh, reading as much as you can about it, uh, and and then applying certain kinds of questions to it. Uh, I mean, you've got a method. But in general, do you feel as though, just sitting here right now on August 20th, that you sort of know how certain things are going to come out? 
you know, I, I think that one of the skills of being a super forecaster is, is not being able to make predictions on a lot of different things, but to know which things are, are you can be confident about as opposed to things that are really uncertain. Um, you know, what is far-fetched and, and what is likely? Um, and, and I think we found that a lot with the, with the questions that we approached. There were some that the teams, I mean, as a whole, we would all sort of say, this is just not going to happen, and we could be very confident. And then other things that we realized that there are so many variables um, that we have to stay at close to a 50-50. Um, and Philip Tetlock, how does the world look to you? You spend so much time around these people. Uh, you spend so much time watching people uh, try to make predictions and solve problems and identifying the people who are really good at it. Um, are, do you feel as though you uh, are getting better and better at knowing what's going to happen? <laughs> well, I study forecasting as opposed to being a forecaster right. myself. Mm-hmm. I, I think one of the great misconceptions in, 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 in the domain of forecasting is, is the looking for, looking for the next Nostradamus, look, looking for the person who, can, who has this allegedly perfect uh, foresight. Um, and what, we're, what we've discovered in the Super Forecasting Project is that good judgment looks a little bit different from that. Good judgment is more like optometry. It's like putting on a, a, a slightly better pair of glasses that improves your vision from 2060 to 2040. It doesn't mean you can see perfectly, but it means you can make out the probabilistic outlines of certain categories of events faster than other people can, and, and that, that often has important implications for, for, for both government and business. All right. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. Uh, Dr. Phil, uh, Philip Tutlock, thank you so much for joining us. The book is Super Forecasting, The Art and Science of Prediction. Thank you, Elaine Rich, and thank you retroactively, Dr. Jason Matheny, director of IARPA. I predict the show is over and that we'll be doing a different show tomorrow, but I don't know what it is. Finally, I'm 100% certain the show's going to be over in 3, 2, 1. 2, 1. Okay, 99% certain now? N- now. Uh...